Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Uh, today is the first uh, discussion episode of the History Respawn podcast, uh, and that's an episode in which I get together with my colleague and co-host on the YouTube series, John Harney, and we get together and we talk a bit about what we're planning with History Respawn, uh, and then also with our live streams on YouTube. Uh, so with that said, uh, let me introduce my co-host, Dr. John Harney. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Hi, everybody. Hey. So um, today we were going to just kind of talk a bit about what we've been doing recently uh, with the show. Uh, and in particular, John, you've just uh, completed an episode for the YouTube series on Crusader Kings 2. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what your experience with that was. So we just published a few days ago Crusader Kings 2, Sword of Islam. And we got kind of an old, an old friend from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Christine Baker, in to talk to us. And I suppose where I should start, Bob, is, as you know, because you, you know, since before I joined the the team, I suppose we call it, you've been getting requests for Crusader Kings 2, it feels like, and for Paradox Games more broadly, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's been one of the most requested games. Yeah, I mean, and I think the big thing we had was this idea of getting an appropriate medievalist was kind of part of our issue. Christine came on and, you know, I, I chose Christine to talk about Islam specifically and I thought I'll pick the I'll pick the DLC, I'll pick Sword of Islam because that leaves us open to do Sons of Abraham, Conclave, you name it, Vanilla CK2. There's still other things that we could do. And that's something that the viewers ask about a lot. Oh, will you do other ones? And I would say, generally speaking, that when we do something specific like that, the reason is, for me at least, we're deliberately leaving the door open. You know, yeah. So like the best example of that is Bioshock Infinite, where yeah. we've done an episode on Bioshock Infinite, but yes, we definitely would love to do a broader episode about the Gilded yeah. Age and racial relations, right? And and just to, you know, kind of uh, peel the curtain back a bit on the show, I mean, the most difficult thing with producing these episodes is finding a historical expert uh, that can talk to the game's content uh, and is willing to talk to us at the same time. Uh, so it's not necessarily the fact that we don't like these games or, you know, we don't have the ability to capture game footage. It's more that it's the scholarship side that still... Somewhat difficult, uh, especially when you're talking about a game set in the medieval time period, because quite frankly, medievalism, uh, medieval historians are somewhat of a rare breed, an increasingly already rare breed of mm -hmm. academia. So Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to reinforce stereo ageist stereotypes, but there are a lot of medievalists who are, you know, excellent, um, but maybe come from a generation where they're not as open to discussing video games as some people are and that isn't always restricted to age i mean i should be very clear on that but yeah it's a challenge getting a guest and i've noticed we've both noticed that the viewers do appreciate when someone has played the game yeah um, and we appreciate that too and and to keep that curtain peeled back with this latest episode christine just had so much fun talking about this game that I, I think she's i think she bought it like as soon as we hung up on our conversation <laughs> she was so <laughs> thrilled by it so and i think that really came through so i was i was very happy about it I was really happy to do Crusader Kings 2 because that's a game that I enjoy very, very much myself and people have been asking for it. And, it, you know, it's done well. And the number of hits a video gets is really not the be-all and end-all. That's really not why we're doing this. But at the same time, it gives you a rough sense of, of how a video has or hasn't maybe landed with certain groups of people and things like that. So at the time we're having this conversation now, which is the video has been out since Monday and it's, it's the end of the week now, it's about 5,000 views 
And um, that's that's great. That's very that that confirms that it was a good call. And that's another thing, Bob. You know, getting the guest is one thing, and then you're making the game. And sometimes you're making the game, especially a strategy game like this, where I'm sitting there thinking, what's this going to look like on the video? And you you are a bit nervous. You know, you, yeah. you hope that it will find its audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with some of these episodes, you you know, you know that there are people out there that want to see it and have been asking for this certain game, but. Even then, you know, there could be a game that's, you know, uh, in some cases like Red Dead or CK2, where it's been out for, you know, half a decade now. Right. Uh, and you assume, oh, well, you know, even if I do release this video or we release this video, are those fans going to come and watch this, uh, you know, about a game that's been out for forever? Uh, it's nice to see that the response to the CK2 episode and also to a certain extent, the Red Dead episode has been positive. And, you know, I think like John was alluding to, you know, we don't really rate the episodes based off of how many hits they get or how many views, uh, but more so on what we judge to be the impact of the episodes, uh, you know, what we get from the audience in terms of comments, uh, either on YouTube or on Twitter, or increasingly uh, on Reddit as well. And there seems to be a, a loyal following of the show that posts these videos on Reddit. Uh, we thank them very much for doing so. But that's a, another way that we kind of, another opportunity for us to judge, you know, how well is this episode doing? You know, is it, you know, making an impact? Is is it, you know, bringing scholarship to gamers? And that's kind of the, that's the purpose of the show. And that's why we do it. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, for example, one of my, favorite episodes i've only done a couple of major episodes for the show but the one i did on bioshock infinite and the boxer uprising was just it was a blast to do and i thought the guest was really good um and it's it's great it's not one of the more viewed videos but sure that's that's really just not the point you know yeah so, yeah, yeah it looks beautiful. exactly uh so you know you've just finished this episode on ck2 and i was wondering if you could maybe tell the audience of what you're working on now for the show Sure, I'm actually quite excited about this. We're going to do Far Cry Primal as the March episode. And there were a number of things, I think it's fair to say, that inspired us to kind of decide this. So just to kind of, re you know, reiterate for people listening, Bob started this and was working on the project for, I think, a year and a half before I came on, Bob? Uh, yeah, close to close to two years. I think it was right at That's two right. years. That's yeah. right. So, so Bob had been plugging away, and, and me coming on, I think... I hope at least was helpful to Bob in terms of lessening workload and stuff. Um, but we we do a, we do all these things together. So like Primal, for example, was was a game that we were both batting around. Which one of us will do it? How do you want to approach it? And I kind of, in the end, I kind of grabbed it, partly because I haven't played Far Cry in a while. Um, and so that's actually, by the way, Bob, that's, that's working out the gameplay because I'm having an absolute ball with it. Good. And I know a lot of reviews, people are like, it's good, but, you know, this is the same game I played, but with in the Himalayas three years yeah, ago. And for me, it's kind of, yeah, that's okay. I didn't, I haven't really played it properly since Far Cry 3. Yeah, so. I'm really, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I, I played a lot of Far Cry 4 uh, when it came out and I just felt looking at Far Cry Primal that if it was going to be more of Far Cry 4, then I, I maybe was not the uh, best person to yeah. uh, play this <laughs> series. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. No, I am. I am. And I was excited about it, too. And we were both excited from, I think, a historical perspective, because the setting in 10,000 BC is it's just a cool and interesting idea. It allows the show to go certainly to a time period we haven't gone to yet, of course. And it kind of opens up a whole new type of uh, how we should approach it. So, for example, getting into the guests, we are hoping to welcome 
um, the two professors from the University of Kentucky who actually helped to work on creating the language for Far Cry Primal because Ubisoft took the decision to hire these people to help them create an authentic language to, to deepen the level of immersion in the game. And uh, I'm here in Kentucky, actually, and so they're hope- hopefully they're going to come down and join us and we'll have to see how that all works out. You know, going to this time period, what kind of guest will we have? Will it be an historian? Will it be an anthropologist? You yeah. know? And so I think that's an interesting kind of direction for the show to go. And I'm excited about it. Um, but like we were just talking about a few minutes ago, the second you kind of get away from a formula you know is working, you're, you're, you have a little bit of nerves, you know, a little bit of yeah. concern. But yeah. but I think it's going to be good. And, and it, it, as the game is the game is really interesting and just I think it's going to work well having the people who worked on the game there. And just from a completely selfish point of view, I hope the visuals will work better in a, like an action-based game like this. You know, it won't be, <laughs> it'll be easier to edit the video together. Yeah, I, again, pulling back the curtain, I mean, we were very concerned with the Crusader Kings 2 episode of, you know, trying to do a Let's Play or an interview with video footage underneath it of a strategy game where there's kind of a lot of things going on in the game, but most of those things are occurring in the mind of the player uh, rather than on the screen. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it can be really hard to portray. So that's why, yeah, like John just mentioned, uh, that's why a lot of these action games uh, such as Red Dead or Far Cry Primal would probably work better from a visual standpoint uh, mm-hmm. than those strategy games. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about with Far Cry Primal is kind of the gameplay working around with bows and spears. I mean, how are you finding that? I mean, you know, as somebody who's played so many uh, first-person shooters with, Mm -hmm. you know, with a gun, I mean, how are you finding it with uh, these kind of low-tech weapons? You know, so far, I'm only about an hour and a half or so into the game, and apparently at some point you get, you can make a bee hand grenade or something, you know, you throw you throw a bag of bees at somebody. It sounds like an Eddie Izzard comedy bit. Does this bee, does this bee have a flag? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so far, I have a bow and arrow and a spear and a club, and there's a couple of cool little dynamics they have in the game. So, for example, the game has a day-night cycle, and at night, certain animals kind of show up that maybe are, they're not nocturnal exactly, but they're more aggressive at night or they come out more at night um, and you can set the club on fire and you know in in good old-fashioned far cry 2 style there's no like meter of this is how long you have left it just you can just see it in front of your character he's holding out the club and you can see the fire inching its way down to his fist at which point you can't really use it for fire anymore but it's still a weapon the bow and arrow and spear are cool the bow and arrow really just works like a gun in a first person shooter yeah to the point where you can get headshots and I mean, uh, I could, I, I, I could turn this off. I'm kind of, I'm kind of leaving it on because maybe we'll talk about it with our guests. But you know, you get headshot twenty XP, and I was tempted to take that out. And I know that um, I was reading a couple of reviews by games journalists who deliberately kind of reduced the HUD and things like that. And I totally get why they did it. And I think I would do it if I wasn't recording. But I don't know, Bob. I kind of have this idea that I, I want the footage to be as close to the experience as presented to the player as possible. Mm. Mm. You know, yeah, um, and so even if it is discordant, the spear is kind of interesting because the spear is a pretty good melee weapon, but you can also just fire it at a person, huh. um, and that actually has been more fun than I expected. Do you lose the spear afterwards? Do you have to go and find it? Um, well, as long as it if it if it lodges into the person, you usually just recover it when you walk over. Ah, now I haven't. Maybe when you fight larger animals, it gets disintegrated or something. But what I would find is the bow and arrow isn't really that useful when a wild dog is suddenly up a, up a, up in all your up in all your business um <laughs> but you can fire a spear into his body and it really slows him down 
and then you still have you know you can have multiple spears you can have like if you uh. had the ingredients you could have six spears on you if you wanted or, or up to a certain amount anyway uh. um the game actually it's weird so with the bow and arrow it may as well be a gun but the big thing about the game it's very crafty you know and in terms of what i mean is you know you do lots of crafting in the game right. and it's just so clearly been enormously influenced by um you know the 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 daisy survival. rust survival, survival stuff yeah. exactly exactly and i'm kind of digging it actually i th- i think um again I, I could see how you could be a bit kind of fed up if you're playing mm. a lot of the games that have been influenced by this but mm. I don't know that I think of myself as a casual game player, but I am a father of a two-year-old, so I'm not playing games as much as I used to. And so suddenly I'm in the sweet spot for the Far Cry games, you know? That's ridiculous, John. There's no excuse for not playing games. <laughs> I expect you to turn in your gamer card as soon as appropriate. You know, one of the interesting things in what about this game and what attracted me to covering it for the series uh, was the fact that it's set in... 10,000 BCE and this is an interesting time period because this is kind of the moment where man uh, has established his dominance over animals and you know when we talk about prehistory what's often left out is the fact that for most of uh, the period before uh, 10,000 BCE uh, man had been basically living in fear of uh, various animal species. But it's not until about 10,000 that you get kind of man beginning to learn how to attack animals, in particular, how to deal with packs of animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's kind of a, a great series of books that came out in the 1990s that deal with this topic. And one of my favorites is a book called um, Blood Rights uh, by Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, and in this book, she talks a lot about this relationship between uh, man. Uh, and animals uh, around 10,000 BCE. And she kind of reveals that, you know, one of the ways that man was able to finally conquer animals was by working in packs, much like animals work in packs, like wolves, Mm -hmm. for instance. And one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, based on archaeological discoveries that uh, have been done, they've discovered that, you know, in these hunting parties, that many times the men who are in these hunting parties, they practice what is known as overkill. So, for instance, when uh, hunting an animal or even hunting a person, uh, you don't just kill them, you mutilate their body afterwards. Uh, and this is kind of a what they uh, refer to as, you know, a way of establishing dominance over other members of that species who might come by uh, and see the animal. And you see this over and over and over again from archaeological digs uh, from around this time period. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things, and it's you know it's, the game is set, I think, during a really momentous period uh, for humanity as a species. Uh, so I'm really I can't wait uh, to see this episode. Yeah, and I'm 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 really curious because you know I I've read a few reviews and there has been some lukewarm discussion of the story as a whole. Mm. Um, but for me, especially for History Respond, I'm curious to perhaps talk to our guests about. In the game, there is kind of a plot of you, you know, the central plot is you're trying to find your people. And so it's a kind of a classic video game loner thing. So you can find other people and help them out and go on escort missions and all these kind of things. And the game opens with you, among other people, hunting woolly mammoth. And so it kind of has that scene and then it transitions into the game. And there's this kind of idea that your clan is good in some way and this other clan is bad. Um, Mm. There's also, I think, a question of kind of two slightly different species of man conflicting against each other, which will be Mm. interesting. And so I'm looking forward to asking our guests about that. So what was conflict like between human groups, you know, whether it be, you know, um, 
whether it's between Neanderthal and Homo sapien or what the conflict is. I myself am not too clear, but I, I think that'd be a cool thing to, to talk to them about. Yeah, I, I also want to mention that, uh, you know, it's around 10,000 BCE that the woolly mammoth begins to disappear, and that's because of overhunting by man. And I'm not sure how it's depicted in the game, but at least in real life, most woolly mammoths were uh, were not killed by, you know, men overpowering the animal. But instead, what they did was uh, the hunting parties would attempt to drive the woolly mammoths off a cliff uh, uh. and kill them that way, uh, rather than trying to meet them uh, head on. Uh, with spears and bows and arrows and so how is it depicted in the game do you yeah so the, the game opens with a mammoth hunt and that's what they're trying to do but it goes wrong essentially so ah, okay. they they have the mammoth it's not clear to you as a player the guy is just yelling at you go 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 you know and you run after the mammoth what they actually do is you and your um, companion are stalking one of the smaller mammoths in the herd and then companions up on a ridge they set fire to some brush to separate yes. the smaller mammoth from yes. the other mammoth and you chase the mammoth to what you later find out is the edge of a cliff, but you are you are you are set upon by another predator, ah. and that that kind of that kind of mucks everything up. And so, well, actually, before you're set upon by the predator, I'm sorry, the the mammoth kind of isn't cooperating, and so you kind of have to take him down, uh, a hmm. little bit video game style. So he doesn't go uh, over the cliff. Well, wow. um, ridiculous! What a yeah. what a rude mammoth. <laughs> so they just they just uh, they lost their nerve. Maybe went all video gamey, um, but no. But it's 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 pretty interesting, and we'll see. I'm still early in the game, so there seems to be the game dynamic is clearly complete these quests, and villagers will go to your village, and so mm. perhaps when I get a bit more of critical mass, more will start to become interesting. Mm. It also is interesting um, the contrast in the game between settlement and the wild, because the game is very much the wild, you know, and these settlements are, are quite rudimentary. They're either kind of built into caves or they're very kind of shallow, whatever. But particularly at night, they're they're noticeable like beacons. Do you know what I mean? And I think it works mm. very well in the gameplay in the sense that, you know, if you're roaming around and if you're like me and you're not using the minimap all that well, you're just kind of roaming around and getting lost in the atmosphere of the game, you can be kind of under a bit of pressure and you kind of, you can see from afar, oh, there's a place with, with light. If I can get there, it'll be a bit safer. And animals will follow you into those areas, but, you know, you can light the club again and if you swing, if you swing a club on fire against a wolf, for example, he'll basically leave you alone, mm. um, which again is pretty cool. But if you don't have anything on fire, he's he's coming for you. Right. Awesome. Well, so yeah, the next thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, at History Respawn, we've been trying to move more into doing actual live streams. And you've been doing a few live streams recently with uh, Civilization Five. So I was wondering if you'd take a moment and just kind of describe for the audience what you're hoping to to do with the next live streams uh, in this series and what other games you might yeah. try to do a live stream for in the future. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so... Bob, you started the live streams, remember, a few months ago with Assassin's Creed Syndicate, wasn't it? I do remember, yes. yes. It was Assassin's <laughs> Creed Syndicate. <laughs> um, and, and we'll talk about that in a second, because I think you might be bringing that back. Um, so I'm doing Civilization Five. I've done two episodes so far. I'm going to do, a, I hope to do maybe two or three more. And I kind of, the idea, before I get into specifically Civ Five, the idea that we both had talking about this was, first of all, there was a sense of, we really enjoy creating this content, for one thing. And it doesn't hurt the channel to have more content. And so there's a question of how do we create meaningful content? And for I think we've agreed that the live streams, therefore, are a slightly different beast from the full episodes. So in the full episodes, even if, for example, we're doing, you know, Chinese or Japanese history, which is an area where I feel quite comfortable, the, the hope is to kind of sit back and allow the guests 
to have this floor as much as, as much as we can possibly do. Like, that's the whole point. The live stream, by definition, puts us kind of right there, front of center with it. But rather than that mean we're restricted all the time to talking about games in our historical fields, it would hopefully give us a chance to experiment, to branch out to different kinds of games, and maybe talk as we're playing about historical methodology, or rather... What is this video game doing that interests me as an historian with the way that it's telling the story? Yeah. Um, how is it presenting characters and things like that, you know? Yeah. Or how the process of actually playing the game makes you think historically. Uh, and I think Civilization is a really good example for that because it really does a nice job, uh, maybe not intentionally, but it does a nice job of presenting uh, contingency in the past where, you know, historians are constantly attempting to fight against this notion that uh you know history is simply remembering facts that couldn't have gone any other way than what they did Mm -hmm. Uh, but in the civilization game you know you can start as china uh and uh you can have experiences that are uh, completely different from you know uh, the chinese uh experience in the real world those things those different experiences are still set within a world which is somewhat similar to real life, but uh, can take different turns. And those turns are sometimes determined by the players and sometimes they're not, you know, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, how different would uh, Chinese history be if they were not located near the Mongols or uh, not near the Japanese or were not in contact with uh, the Yangtze river, for instance. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are possible with civilization. And I think that's what makes it such a good, good game for a live stream and then also a good game for the series yeah it has been great in the two episodes that i've done and and one of the it has combated as you as you said earlier that concern with the strategy game you know like who's going to care about me kind of clicking around and and you know you can do some little things in civ 5 you can tweak the speed of the turns and stuff which is something that i did but um one of my initial ideas bob was to there's a great mod available through the steam workshop that basically creates a world map of a much larger scale and basically would have started me in Beijing, like actual Beijing on a map that quite closely resembles the world we live in, you know. Um, And then my neighbors would have been the Mongols and then neighbors to the east would have been Japan. And I initially was like, that'll be great. It'll be fun and we can muck around with it. And there were some technical reasons I didn't do it, but also it kind of went against what you were just saying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, hang on, this is diluting the whole point to do in the game. And what's been fun about playing the game is I'm kind of trying to play it kind of quote unquote in character, you know, so I'm trying to get writing earlier than other things and all these kind of, (laughs) you know, in some way trying to, um, you know, approximate in some sense the China experience. Um, but, you know, Civ five, the civilization games are games of anachronisms, like the way that time flows. Like you do not enter the Industrial Revolution at the same time as, you know, actually happened. I mean, it's, or it's very hard to time it that way. Interactions with other societies are different. Um, so in episode two, I talked a little bit about Chinese encounters with barbarians as I was trying to fight barbarians. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, the next couple episodes will be the late imperial period and then the, the end of the imperial period going into the modern period. And I'm particularly looking forward to talking about that late imperial slash modern period because it'll be such a great chance to talk about how does this game handle progression into quote unquote modernity? Do you know what I mean? Yes. How does the game handle progress? And that is also and, and how does it how does the game define modernity? I mean, because yes, you know, you get to the end of the tech tree, and I think the tech tree itself it gets you know it gets a lot of criticism from. Uh, historians and scholars for being unrealistic but Mm -hmm. i think the tech tree does a a decent job of presenting you know many different avenues for development 
until you get to the end. And, uh, you know, at the end of the game, you're presented with a number of different victory conditions, but many of these victory conditions are best based on, you know, what we might call a very Western liberal tradition of what it means to be successful in modernity, which, Mm -hmm. you know, has a very different definition when you're coming from a different part of the world, you know, that's not a part of the West. No, exactly. And I think that this is something that, you know, comes up in our classes all the time, especially my classes teaching about East Asia. And I was talking to students recently, I was reading an article about discussing how the Western media treats China um, and had a lot of very good points. Although at one point, the author complained that uh, the West has a bias towards liberal democracy, or our media does, you know, and freedom of speech. And as I said to my students, I'm actually okay with that. I'm okay with that bias existing. But but as historians, though, <laughs> but as historians, it's such a useful question. And it's such a difficult question to get people to think about. It's very hard, not just for our students, but for us to break ourselves out of that. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's absolutely. so difficult to do. And so that's been, it's been a little bit of fun. That's kind of come up. And I think it's going to come up in a big way with Civ Five And those kind of disconnects, I think, I think it's going to be really fun. And, you know, going forward, I... I hope that I know that we will both kind of start to go out on a limb a little bit. And so I'll do something that isn't Asian history, you know, but I'm glad I did Civ 5 and I'm glad that I'm doing Civ 5 as a live stream because it's a good way to kind of start with it. And again, you know, people leave nice comments and make nice points about it. Um, and it's just a nice little bit of added layer of content to the channel. And, and I, I like that um, it's there for people if they want to go in there and peruse it. And it seems to me, at least I hopefully the viewers can kind of see quickly that it's just a very different kind of an animal from the main episodes. But yeah. it's an addition to what we're doing as opposed to it's certain. I just certainly don't think it's detracting from what we're doing. No, no. And, uh, you know, I think it's a nice compliment, like you said. And I'm, you know, really interested to see where your live stream goes. And in particular, I, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat as to which victory condition you're going to go for. I mean, what, <laughs> what do you think the victory condition for modern China is? I mean, is, does it lie in the South China Sea? Uh, constructing great... islands and putting rockets on them that's a great question putting rockets in small islands um we'll see i might go for a kind of a confucian humanist playthrough and see if i can win through culture that might be uh-huh. uh and and knowing civilization five as i do that might lead to ignominious failure um <laughs> but uh but but we'll we'll see we'll see how yeah. it goes but cool. you talked to me Bob, about um you're thinking of revisiting assassin's creed syndicate for the next live stream right yeah so since i did the live streams uh in the fall for assassin's creed Syndicate, there's been a couple of DLC releases for that game. Uh, the first one was uh, the Jack the Ripper DLC, which is much more of a kind of an expansion pack, an old style expansion pack to that game where it's uh, it's an actually a separate menu item uh, in the main screen. Oh, wow. uh, and then there's the uh, Last Maharaja DLC, which just came out this week. And that's kind of set within the vanilla game, as we call it here on History Respawn. Uh, (laughs) And it's uh, 10 additional episodes or 10 additional missions uh, within that main game. So it's kind of of a little bit of an add-on to the main storyline, whereas the Jack the Ripper DLC is an actual separate uh, campaign, separate story, uh, which occurs about, uh, I think it's 15 years after uh, the events of the first part of the game. So... I'm interested in going back and seeing those. And in particular, I'm interested in seeing uh, the Jack the Ripper DLC because I think, you know, my main criticism of uh, Assassin's Creed Syndicate was the fact that it didn't include any mention, really any mention of uh, prostitution during the Victorian age, which, uh, you know, if you're doing a game set in the Victorian era 
uh, that includes people like uh, Charles Dickens, then you've got to make some mention of the Victorian obsession with fallen women, uh, with prostitution, uh, and then uh, what that meant to not just uh, you know sex workers during the Victorian age, but also what that meant to uh, women in higher classes who kind of rallied uh, in many cases to uh, the aid of sex workers. And, you know, it's kind of seen, at least in uh, British history, it's kind of seen as one of the most important feminist moments uh, is uh, this kind of battle between the established government, uh, between the police and uh, kind of what we might call proto-feminists uh, in the mid-19th century during the Victorian age. And then with the last Maharaja DLC, I'm really interested to see how they try to incorporate at all the the history of the British Empire, uh, which was another kind of failing I felt, uh, you know, of the base game, uh, and it's you know it's something that's it's difficult to do because you know they built the game in London, but and you know you're not gonna have a um, Assassin's Creed go or not going to have this game go to India or go to South Africa or you know anywhere else uh, throughout the empire, but. Uh, at the same time, you know, London itself was, you know, what you would call, what historians would call an imperial city. And it's a place where you have people from uh, throughout the empire going there to trade, going there to uh, work in politics, and then also going there to uh, live permanently. So uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping a lot for the last Maharaja DLC simply because I study empire, I study the British empire in particular. Uh, but from what I've seen so far from <laughs> reviews uh, for this most recent DLC, it, it's probably uh, not going to uh, satisfy my appetite. But uh, I'll still go ahead and give it a try going through it with the uh, live streams on YouTube. And, you know, we'll see where it takes us. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be someplace good. I think it's great. And, I, you know, they're fun to do. You know, as we move on, you know, so Bob... Assassin's Creed Syndicate for you is it's still a bit of a home game because, you know, it's in Britain and you're, as you said, you're an historian of empire. But as you go forward, like you mentioned the Jack the Ripper DLC, for example, like for me, that's the kind of thing, like why, why, why on earth, how does Jack the Ripper become this just memorable character? Do you know what I mean? Like, like one of the mm-hmm. most recognizable characters in present day popular culture from that entire era. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just an astonishing question, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'll go into detail with this in the uh, live stream, but you know, really it has to do with the media coverage of the Ripper killings because there were pretty gruesome killings uh, in East London uh, around this time. But, you know, it was the Jack the Ripper killings that really kind of caught the public's attention, uh, got a lot of sensationalized uh, media coverage. And, you know, I think when we think today, especially in America, about, you know, how the media often dictates, you know, what we think about and what we talk about, uh, particularly when we're talking about presidential campaigns involving Donald Trump. You know, these types of stories that are kind of generated and fed by media attention, they end up becoming what we focus on historically uh, or in retrospect, when in fact at the time, you know, from the perspective of people living in East London, living in Whitechapel, these murders would have been part of a whole array of uh, different types of violence going on at the time and maybe would not have seemed that spectacular uh, for them. Uh, so it's all about context. Uh, and, you know, I think that's kind of one of the main goals for the show is to try to not necessarily criticize these games for being inaccurate, but to stress to the players, to the viewers of the series that, 
you know, context is important and, you know, knowing about the context gives you a better ability to, to judge these games in terms of historical accuracy, but then also simply to appreciate, you know, some of the aspects of, you know, what's going on, you know, around the same time. And then also what's going on with your own life. I mean, I think, you know, with, uh, studying history, you kind of begin to look for similar patterns, similar themes in the modern day. And I think we don't necessarily have an equivalent of Jack the Ripper today, thank God. But there is certainly something to be said for the sensationalized uh, media coverage, which you see uh, in that game and or what I assume you'll see in that game. I haven't played it yet. So hopefully, hopefully that'll be a part of uh, Assassin's Creed coverage. Uh, of that time period. So, um, so I just, uh, wanted to mention briefly that, uh, I'm working on another episode for the series on LA Noir. Uh, and this is another game that people have requested, uh, many times before. And we've, uh, finally been able to uh, capture footage, uh, for that this past week. So I'm really looking forward to, to finding a scholar, uh, for that game. John, have you, you played LA Noir a little bit, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, uh, what did you make of the game? Cause I think it got a little bit of a tepid response from critics, uh, when it originally came out. I, I personally enjoyed it, but I'm just kind of curious as to what you thought of it. You know, I liked it. I mean, I definitely didn't quote unquote bounce off it, which I guess is what we're saying now, which actually, I really like that saying, cause that's pretty much what I've been doing with games for years. But I, <laughs> it, well, what happened to me was I think I might have been working either on my book or on the dissertation, which is what that was a year before that. And so I got a certain amount into it and kind of, you know, faded away. I liked L.A. Noir a lot. I think that there's a couple of different reasons. I think when it came out, there was so much fuss over Rockstar's facial technology, it seems yes. to me, yeah. that people, and I'm not trying to be critical of the game reviewers because I, I think reviews are written in good faith and everything, but there was almost a sense of kind of people had gotten this idea of it's going to be this amazing new way of storytelling and it kind of isn't really. Right. Um, but what I like about L.A. Noir is it has such a clear sense of theme. And I remember when Red Dead Redemption came out, like I was so excited when our episode came out a couple of weeks ago or a month ago because I just love that game. And part of the reason I love that game is I just love the way that game depicts history. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time you and I talking about what they should bring out, you know, the World War One version of Red Dead, like the same engine, <laughs> just do different things. And, you know, that the fall of Beijing and there's all kinds of things you could do that would be awesome. And L.A. Noir scratched a similar itch for me in that it just, I'm, I can't wait to hear the full episode that we're going to do to hear from an historian who talks about it. But if it doesn't capture the authentic feeling of Los Angeles at that period, it definitely captures how we remember it. Yes. And, and I think that the way that L.A. Noir taps into both Chinatown and L.A. Confidential yes. um, is excellent. Yeah. Like, it's just excellent. It, it, yeah. And it really scratches that itch. And so I'm very curious to hear our guest kind of talk about how we remember that period versus perhaps what it might have actually been like. Not not in the standard how accurate, how accurate is this type of question, but, but just to hear the, the divergence between, you know, public memory of that period versus perhaps a slightly clearer picture of the reality. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, you know, to bring up Red Dead with reference to this. I mean, you know, obviously they're uh, two games that are developed by the same company, but uh, you know, it's they pick two pieces of uh, history, you know, the West and then Los Angeles in the 1940s that are, you know, very popular in fiction, very popular in motion pictures. And, you know, the the popularity of those two time periods, you know, kind of leads it to have this kind of public memory, you know, of the West, a public mm-hmm. memory of 
uh, Los Angeles in the 1940s. And yeah, again, like you said, it's not about necessarily poking holes in the accuracy of that, but I think it's fun to do an episode of History Respawn on those two games because it allows us a moment to, to talk about it, you know, in terms of public memory, in terms of genre, you know, and what that means to us now, right? What is what is uh, our depiction of these eras? What does that say about us? Uh, I think that's a better way to approach these games rather than saying things, for instance, like, uh, oh, they didn't have seatbelts uh, right. in cars <laughs> in 1947, or uh, they didn't have uh, this type of uh, Coupe de Ville uh, mm-hmm. in 1947. You know, that's kind of uh, banal uh, and not really that interesting. <laughs> uh, and I'm much more interested in, you know, kind of what you touched upon this, this kind of public memory uh, facet to that game. And I could say is, you know, somebody who's been capturing footage for that game, it's been a lot of fun to go back and kind mm-hmm. of relive that game. It's something I really enjoyed playing when it first came out. And I've also really enjoyed, uh, some of the facial animations. Uh, and I think some of these, some of these facial animations haven't aged quite as well. Uh, as I think Rockstar had hoped, uh, or Team Bondi, the uh, the actual developer of the game. So I'll be interested to hear comments uh, or see comments from mm-hmm. uh, viewers of the show on YouTube to see what they make of this old footage. There's also the sense for me of this is Rockstar dipping into a world that has been dipped into, and like Chinatown is one of the kind of classic films of its era, right? And this is, you know, seedy underbelly of the American dream, yeah. you know? And I just think the ground there is so fertile to just have a really interesting conversation about it because everybody is familiar with the concept of the American dream. And and one of the reasons this kind of this there's this noirish element of the dark side to that, I think that's just a hook that's so easy to be to be drawn into and, and yeah. it's gonna be a great conversation. Uh, I mean, yeah, I I think uh, every single Rockstar game is about the C D underbelly of the American dream. I mean yeah. <laughs> every single GTA game is about that. You know, that's kind of, it's not surprising to me at least that they tackled the old West. It's not surprising to me that they tackled uh, Los Angeles during the 1940s because those are two eras uh, in which, you know, there is kind of a a seedy underbelly uh, to the American dream. And it's one that is very much a part of our public memory, you know, of those two time periods. So, yeah, I, yeah, totally agree. I can't wait to, can't wait to present this. I do need to find a scholar. Uh, for it so uh, i'm gonna start that search uh next week luckily i have you doing far cry primal so that gives me a little bit of a breather uh to give me give myself some time to find a scholar uh, for la noir uh so i just want to wrap up the episode by kind of talking a little bit about what games we've been playing that are maybe not historical i've been playing uh galaxy uh which is a downloadable game on uh, PlayStation 4. I saw I think, that. That looks really cool. Yeah, I, I think it might be available on PC by now. I'm not it sure. Is. But, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a roguelike game uh, in which you are piloting a fighter starship and you are doing various missions, but these missions are set within what are called seasons. And so in order to conclude a season or a chapter of the game, you have to complete, I think it's four missions per season. You have to complete uh, those four missions without dying. Uh, Hmm. And it becomes incredibly difficult because the game is by itself uh, very hard, but also because uh, you have limited resources and you have to constantly uh, attempt to manage, you know, what upgrades you're buying for your ship and, attempt as best you can to 
tailor the upgrades that you're buying for your ship to the particular mission that you're going to go on. Uh, and I've found the game to be delightfully challenging, but very challenging nonetheless. I still have not finished uh, the first season of the game, and I, I feel like I, I've come to a point where either I'm going to finish this first first season or I'm just going to give up on the game entirely. <laughs> not because I don't enjoy it, but just because I'm tired of bashing my head uh, up against these uh, these individual levels. I know the feeling. I'm actually, so I'm playing Don't Starve. Ah, okay. Which Somewhat similar, yeah. It's somewhat similar, and it's funny because... Don't Starve is a game that I just, I first, I've just, it's never really reached out to me. I, 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 despite the fact that its art style is actually probably one of its bigger selling points, something about it turned me off for a long time. And it, it was on, it was on a very low sale on Steam a couple of weeks ago, and so I grabbed it. Um, and it's great. And I think part of what helps me enjoy it, actually, speaking of difficulty spikes, is uh, Crusader Kings 2, of all games, taught me to just kind of get over that. Because um, <laughs> Crusader Kings 2 is a game that I learned to just, just enjoy. And I've had playthroughs where I've suddenly become the king of Italy, almost by accident. And I've had games where just nothing happened for 100 years and I died. Um, <laughs> and it kind of maybe it's conditioned me to accept it. And so in Don't Starve, the, the thing I would say about Don't Starve that gets a bit frustrating is... It feels grindy very quickly because um, it's a survival game. But um, what they've done really well, I think, is they've nailed the kind of sense of survival, uh, sense of exploration rather, mm. um, is a lot of fun. And you can just find all kinds of new things. And I am so bad for spoiling myself with games like this, but I'm I'm just not doing it with Don't Starve. I mean, you could, you know, you could look up, you know, Don't Starve wiki and just dig into it and see what's there. And I'm deliberately not doing it because whenever I discover a kind of an odd little pagan arrangement in honor of some kind of weird god or um, a little community of anthropomorphic pigs or something, it's really cool. They do a really nice job of it. And that's kind of my favorite part of the game is discovering strange new things. So just two days ago, I was playing the game and I discovered what looked like a little fort that had been abandoned. I thought, this is great. So I opened up this chest and it had all this cool stuff in it, this fantastic loot, basically, you know, for crafting. I was like, this is fantastic. And then it exploded and killed me, and my game was over. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's just one a booby-trapped chest. Last moment of, one last moment of bliss. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was really it was really well done. Um, and so I've been really, really enjoying Don't Starve. Um, I somehow am finding a way to have a rotation of Heroes of the Storm and Rocket League because my two-year-old son yes. really likes Rocket League and so we play Rocket League together. And I say Heroes of the Storm isn't in my rotation. I'm, I'm squeezing in a couple of games a week. <laughs> um, and then How long did those games last? Uh, about 20 minutes. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, see, well, that's the key thing. I mean, for listeners who don't have children, I mean, uh, Heroes of the Storm and then definitely Rocket League. I mean, those are two games where... You know, it's basically a set amount of time that you're going to be playing, and that's very helpful uh, when yeah, you're trying to budget deal. time to play games and then also to deal with a toddler uh, running around. I went through a phase of playing Dota. I like Dota. Dota's a good game. But one game of Dota, including connection times and everything, you're, you've got to carve out an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your child is napping, that's just not an option. No. <laughs> and even if your child's in bed, it's kind of, well... You know, I have T minus this many, this much time. <laughs> and so 
of course, it's 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 the same conundrum of let's watch a movie. Ah, I don't feel like it, and you watch three hours of a TV show instead. Um, it's the same thing. Yeah, so why play, do we do that? I why know. Why do we do that? I, I do know. the same thing with my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll play Here's the Storm for like two hours, you know, um, when I get a chance to play it. But but I just really like it. It's also a game. Um, they made decisions with Here's the Storm that I could see being frustrating for, for example, Dota 2 players, but it works well for me. So there's just team text chat. There's no voice chat. And so it's less likely you're going to have to deal with abuse. It's very easy to ignore somebody. And the design of the game is really interesting. At first, I thought I wouldn't like it, but it's very objective-based. And it really just creates almost natural teamwork. So if you're playing alongside people who have played the game before and play it regularly, um, you basically, you you all have a rough idea of what to do. Do you know what I mean? So, okay, mm-hmm. we need to be here. And it creates these kind of team fight situations. And... Um, yeah, it's a really good game and very. I for me, I think it's the friendliest of the quote unquote MOBAs. If somebody thinks MOBAs sound cool but are terrified by the complexity or the community, here's the storm. I think is is Blizzard being geniuses yet again. Awesome, <laughs> you know, cool. All right, well, uh, I'm sure we're all just going to end up giving all of our money to Blizzard anyway. So they'll just stop uh, making games and collect money from us. That that's right. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> So uh, with that, I think we should probably sign off here on this episode. Uh, Again, thank you for downloading this episode. Uh, Again, this is kind of a trial episode for these discussion uh, podcasts. Uh, We'll see if we can't come up with a better title uh, for these episodes. Uh, But until then, uh, you can find History Respawn on uh, Facebook, on Twitter at History Respawn. Uh, and historyrespawn.com as well uh, with a lovely website that's been put together by uh, John Harney. Uh, and if you can, please uh, rate us on iTunes. Uh, you know, I've been told by experts that this is a really good way uh, to build an audience for the show is to be highly rated. So if you can, uh, please rate us. Uh, please rate us highly. And then also, uh, please tune in for more episodes.